How are we doing, church? Doing okay? You're looking great. Hey, if you got your Bibles, I hope you do. Uh, grab them. Go to Colossians chapter two. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, this this is not uh, this is not like a, a a spectator sport here. This is an all skate. So everybody, grab your Bible. Go to Colossians two. Uh, we're starting a, the second part of a four part series in our study of the book of Colossians. And uh, let me apologize for my voice. I'm kind of fighting through a cold a little bit, so uh, I'm sorry for that. I've taken lots of cold medicine, so if things fly out of my face during the sermon, just pray for me. Uh, if weird stuff flies out of my mouth, we'll blame it on cold medicine. If it's decent, we'll give it to the Holy Spirit, okay? So that's what we're going to do, and we'll hack through this over the next little while. Um, the, the first part of this series was Before All Things in His Church. About a year ago, we started this Before All Things journey, this discipleship journey, and so now we're sort of shifting gears to what it means for Jesus to be before all things in our hearts, and in our individual selves, and so uh, during our before all things in his church part, we talked about the vision of the church, and uh, we were going to love our neighbors, that's what God has called us to do, to declare and demonstrate the gospel to people right here in Jacksonville and around the world, and a part of the way that we're going to love our neighbors globally is that you are going to go on a short-term mission trip. If you're a part of 1122, that's what we do. You got three years to go. You don't have to go every three years, but Jesus discipled his disciples for three years, and then he turned them loose on the world. And so that's kind of, we play by Jesus' rules around here. And so tomorrow, Monday night at 6.30 at every campus, yeah, at 6.30 at every campus, so here at Bay Meadows, at Mandarin, uh, we have a short-term mission trip meeting. You should go to find out what that week of your life is going to be like. So go to that. Also, not only are we going to love our neighbors globally, but we're going to love them locally. And a part of the way that we're going to do that is we are uh, partnering with eight other churches and the Tim Tebow Foundation to host Night to Shine on February the 10th. It's a prom for people with special needs. And we're just going to show up and love them and scream to them that they are valuable, therefore they should be valued because of what Christ has done for them. Now, we've had hundreds of you sign up to be volunteers, which is great, but we need thousands of people to be volunteers. Now, of, of the eight churches, we are by far, we have the most volunteers, and this is not a competition, but we are winning, okay? And so, <laughs> I need to crush everybody else in the name of Jesus. So what we're going to do is uh, get out your smartphone right now. Go to nighttoshinejacks.com and sign up to be a volunteer for February the 10th. That's what we're doing. Uh, also, on the last week, last week, which was the last week of the first part, before all things in this church, we had a commitment time where we recommitted or committed for the first time financially to say, God, this is what it looks like for you to be before all things. So if you weren't here last week, grab one of these cards, fill it out. You can drop it off on your way out today. And I cannot wait till next week to share with you good news of what God is doing in us and through us and to us. And it's going to be very exciting when I share uh, what our results are. So all that to say, now we're shifting gears into what does it mean for Jesus to be before all things in our heart? Because the gospel is definitely cosmic, and the gospel definitely has social implications for sure, but the gospel begins, it starts in the hearts and lives of individual people that God then collectively brings together to be the church. So over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be before all things in our hearts. So if you found Colossians 2 now, I hope you have. <clears throat> if not, keep looking. Don't give up. We're going to be here for like 12 more weeks, so you can find it, okay? So Colossians chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 6. Paul starts out this way, therefore. The reason he says therefore, it is referring back to the entire last series that we did. 
Because Jesus is preeminent, because he is first, because he loves first, because he goes first, because he initiates our salvation with his love and gives us the gift of faith. Therefore, as you, talking to you Christians, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. In other words, the gospel is not just for our justification but our sanctification. Let me explain that. The gospel is not just that thing that makes you a Christian. The gospel is also that thing that helps you live the Christian life. Paul is saying, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Uh Uh-huh. Then act like it. Live like it. And that doesn't mean that you have to earn your relationship with God. Just like the gift of salvation was a free gift, so still live in that free gift as you walk in him. The way it plays out in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are things like this. In John chapter 11. If you've been around Bible study for a while, you know this story or this event. Lazarus is dead and he is in the tomb and Jesus shows up four days later. He has a little cry fest with his family and then he stands in front of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the sisters show up and in King James they say, but Lord, he stinketh. You know what that means? He ain't just a little bit dead, he's all the way rotten dead. That's how dead he is. Four days dead, it it might take a minute to get that out of you. You know what I'm saying? That's what's happening. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And dead Lazarus is resurrected from the grave, and he comes hopping out of the grave because he's got about 100 pounds of burial cloths on. And the first commandment that Jesus gives to to resurrected Lazarus is this, take off your grave clothes. Why? Because you're alive, and you got on dead man's clothes. And if you're living, then you don't need to have those dead man's clothes on anymore. And the same thing is true for us in Christ. If you are in Christ, a lot of us have a temptation to go back and do the things that we used to do. But you don't have to do what you used to do because you're not the person that you used to be. So why in the world would you put on stinky old dead man's clothes when you're alive? Just as you received Christ, so walk in him. Or in John chapter 5, there's this man who's been paralyzed from birth. He's 38 years old. He's been laying on this mat for his entire life. Jesus walks by forgives him of his sins, and says, arise, walk, take up your mat, and walk. And so this man gets up, takes up his mat or his bedroll, and he walks as a declaration of what Jesus had saved him from. Now, you know what would be crazy, what would be idiotic, what just wouldn't make any sense at all? It's if a man that could walk would open that bedroll or that mat back up and lay back down in it. Can you imagine how filthy that mat is? Ladies, some of your workout mats, you know what they smell like? And you bathe and use lotions and smell great, all right? This brother hadn't taken a bath in 38 years and is just laying on this mat. Why would a healthy man lay on that stinky mat? It just doesn't make sense. Paul is saying in the same way, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. It is for freedom that he has set you free. And that same grace that saved you, when we stumble and we fall, we fall back down on that same grace. And our Heavenly Father picks us up and sets us back on our feet to continue to follow after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? Humbly. Humbly. That's how we receive Jesus. Anybody that's a a Christian, that moment you realize that it is by grace that you've been saved by faith and not of your own works. That moment where you realize, Jesus, I need you to do something for me that I cannot do on my own. And you knew that you are a sinner, but he is a greater savior. 
That's how we received the gospel of Jesus. Because let me tell you what nobody's ever done in the history of humanity. No person has ever received the gospel proudly. Nobody could ever look at the cross and say, well, it's about time. Because I have been crushing it in my Christian life. Because if that's what you think, if you think you deserve Jesus, then it means you don't know the gospel and you're on your way to hell. Sorry for the bad news. It's just true. But it's when we get to that moment where we say, I need you to do something for me. I can't do it on my own. Then you humbly receive Christ. And then Paul says, and that's how you're supposed to walk. And so if, you, if the natural reaction is, okay, how do I do that? Verse 7. Here's how you do that. Rooted and built up in him, in Jesus, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, the way to be, the way to walk in him and to be built up is to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's to never graduate from that point where you understand what a wretch I am, what a sinner I am, and what a greater Savior I serve. Because when that happens... What begins to happen is we have an attitude of gratitude that we would never leave this idea of who am I that you would take my place. And when we, when we know that, when we believe that, when we remind ourselves of that, then it stirs in this worship. It stirs in us worship to say, thank you, God, that you would save a wretch like me. Verse 8, see to it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul knows this. Paul knows that if you're going to be rooted in the gospel, if you're not going to graduate from the gospel, that there are rivals to the gospel that, will, that we need to be on the watch out for. And he, he lists here four rivals to the gospel. The first rival to the gospel that he mentions is philosophy. Now, there's nothing in and of itself bad about philosophy, but what he's talking about here is a philosophy that, that captures or captivates you. Here's what he's saying. Philosophy is when you think you know better than God. And this is how it plays out. You consider yourselves a Christian, but you're like, listen, you know what? I know that he's almighty, sovereign of heaven and earth. I know that he is the creator of life. But I'm 26-year-old with an English degree and work at a cell phone company, but don't worry about that. And I know how to do life better than you, God. I mean, I, 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 know, I know how to do sex better, money better, relationships better, forgiveness better. I know that you have your way of doing things, but you don't understand my situation. I know better than you. And the moment you begin to actually live like that and think those kind of things, I don't think anybody would say that. We just do that in the way we live. And the moment we begin to do that, we have been captivated by an enemy or a rival of the gospel. And we are saying, you are not the boss of me. I'm the boss of me. The second thing he lists here is empty deceit. Empty deceit, the primary way this world tries to deceive us or to be deceitful for us is this world lies to us and tells us that the things of this world can satisfy us. Around here, we lovingly call that the cul-de-sac of stupidity. That's what we call it. And it just means this. When we put our hope in the stuff of this world... Now, is there anything wrong with the stuff of this world? No, nah, man, get you some stuff. You should use the stuff of this world to stir a new worship to the giver of all the good stuff. But when we put our hope in the stuff of this world, it's stupid. That's why we call it the cul-de-sac of stupidity. Now, listen, 
Two laps around the cul-de-sac, we'll give it to you. We're humans, we're not that smart, okay? But the third lap around, here's what's stupid. We go, this stuff will not satisfy me. I have an idea. More of the same stuff in a newer model, that will fully and finally satisfy. Stupid. If you're on your third house because you think it's going to do something for your soul, how dumb is that? Your first two houses didn't do it for you, but this time you think granite countertops and a half bath are going to satisfy you forever? Are you crazy? Or you think, you think oh, I've got to have new clothes because these clothes have gone out of season. Folks, dear season, clothes don't have seasons. They're just clothes. And if you think more, like the clothes you have on are not doing it for you, why do you think a new set of them are going to do it for you? That is the, that's the, the deceitfulness of this world. It is empty deceit. That you reach out and begin to try to grab on to the things of this world. And then you realize they have a hold of you. And, and Paul is saying, be careful. It's a cul-de-sac of stupidity. The third thing he mentions is this, human tradition. Human tradition. <clears throat> now, if you're, if you're new to church, th this might freak you out. But one of the primary rivals to the gospel of Jesus Christ is religion. That religion is one of the primary hindrances to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because religion is just simply this. Religion is human tradition, man's attempt to appease God. Human tradition or religion is, if I do these things, then I will be in right standing with God. And regardless of what religion you grow up in, or regardless of what denomination you grow, grow up in, I mean, you know, if you grew up Catholic, then it was, hey, you got to attend these events, and these are certain uh, mile markers that you need to hit, and you need to do these things, and if you do these things, you're okay with God. Or if, if you grew up uh, Pentecostal, it was kind of the pursuit of a feeling, and, you know, you got your first tambourine and your banner or whatever it was. Or if you grew up uh, Presbyterian, you had to memorize a set of uh, laws. Or if you grew up Lutheran, it was about attending this kind of thing. If you grew up Baptist like me, do you know what the human tradition was? It was good Christians don't smoke drink or chew or go with girls who do. That was our rules. You could tell why I failed miserably, okay? I was like, they're the best girls, and I really like all the things on the list, all right? <laughs> and the problem, the fundamental problem is, is we then begin to put our activity in front of our identity, and that is the human tradition that is a rival to the gospel. Because the gospel says that God loves the you right now and he came to the, die for the you right now. Not once you got your act together. You've heard me say this before, man. The person that thinks they got to get their act together before they come to the Lord is like the fool that thinks he needs to wait for the bleeding to stop to go to the emergency room. That's just not how it works. And so he says, be careful, watch out. And then there's a lot of people, especially in the south, especially in Jacksonville. And you think you're a Christian just because you go to church. And your mom and daddy went to church and your grandparents went to church. Sitting in church does not make you a Christian any more than putting your head in the oven makes you a biscuit. That is not how it works. It is not outside in. It is from the inside out. And so Paul says, be careful. The fourth, uh, the fourth thing is this. He gets kind of spooky. He says the fourth rival of the gospel is elemental spirits. And what he's talking about is spiritual warfare. You see, there is an unseen world that affects the world that we can see. And so, I mean, if you don't believe that, just come let me breathe on your face after the service, and I will change your week, okay? Because I have this unseen thing that will change your life for the week. It's just true. And then C.S. Lewis says the danger of Christians in regards to spiritual warfare is there's some people that, that 
completely ignore demons and the demonic. And be careful, be careful, because they want to be camouflaged and unseen. And he says, but just as dangerous are the people that obsess over the demonic. Because there are people that think there's a demon behind every bad hair day. That's not true. Maybe you just need a haircut, or it's humidity. It might not be the devil, all right? Uh, somebody told me once that the, that the devil was thwarting their plans for the Lord because they ran out of gas. No, you're just dumb. God gave you that gauge, and before it got to E, you, the devil didn't do that. You're just dumb. Don't be dumb. Many people come to me at the end of a service, and the, the, the enemy is coming after me. Okay, what's going on in your life? And they lay out what's happening in their life. I'm like, the devil doesn't have to attack you. The sabotage you got on you is doing just fine. You're doing his own work against you. So don't be dumb. But, but you've got to understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That we do have a real spiritual enemy that wants to take us out. The Bible says that the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now listen, <clears throat> which one does the lion always go after? Come on, we all know this. You don't have to be a biologist to know this. You flip through the, the, to the Discovery Channel, and if you see a lion like prowling around in the grass, and then the next scene is that little herd of antelope. You're like, okay. And then there's that little one, you know, you've got the three-legged one kind of hanging out on the, on the outside of the herd. What do you know? Children, turn the channel. This is not going to go well, okay? This is not a Disney movie, okay? In the Disney movies, the parents die before it gets started, and the animals live. That's just something different, though. <laughs> but what do you know? There is nothing more brutal than, than Mother Nature. Nothing more brutal than her, Mother Nature, which always makes me laugh when the people are like, save the animals. I'm like, you realize the animals wouldn't save you? If you laid down long enough in the woods, they would eat out your eyeballs, <laughs> which might be fine, in my opinion, but that's a different sermon, too. Do you understand that? Nothing is as brutal as Mother Nature. And so that lion, which one is he looking for? Do you know why God created animals with a herd instinct? Because it is the herd that protects that weak one. So watch out, church. Watch out. Because the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Let me tell you who he devours. He devour, devours that disconnected one. He devours that one. He devours you that attend this church every week and nobody knows about it because you're not connected to the body in any way. The Bible, when it talks about the church, one of the, one of the things it describes it as, a church as, is as a body. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a part of the body of Christ. A disconnected body part is not awesome. I mean, let's be honest. During worship, if you look down and there was just a finger, just a finger at your seat, what would you think? What are they doing at the 9 o'clock service? Oh, my goodness. You wouldn't think, well, who, a finger doesn't need a body. No, everybody knows that if there's just a detached finger, that's not good for the finger or the body of which it came from. The same is true in the church. You see, what the church ought to be about is when we have the wounded one, when we have the one that feels isolated, that the reason that we are called together as a family and that we should be connected as a family is you take that one that needs help, you take that wounded one, you take that isolated one, and you put them in the middle of the herd and say, listen, you're safe in here. The enemy cannot get to you in here. This is why it is so important for you to take a step of faith and get connected at 1122. Because what good does it do if you just show up here and attend, but you're not a part of the body? Who is praying for you? Who is looking out for you? There's two types of people that need to join disciple groups. 
Some of you are wounded. And, and it, you're going to have a tendency to isolate yourself and beware. The moment you do that, you're easy target for the enemy. You're an easy target for the enemy. At the end of this service, you should go to the Connect Center and say, I'm wounded. I need to get in a disciple group. And, and that disciple group needs to say, okay, get here in the middle. Now, there's a whole bunch of you, and you think, well, I'm not wounded. I kind of got it together. Well, you need to join a disciple group. You know why? Because it ain't about you. Maybe, okay, if you think you're strong, arrogant, but maybe strong, then you need to join a disciple group so you can be the kind of people that are taking care of the wounded and the isolated and put them in the middle of your strength that you have so that they can be nourished and built up. I mean, let's be honest. Do you know what I learned in my disciple group? Nothing. Nothing. I mean, I've got degrees in this stuff. Study it all day. I sit in there at 6 o'clock in the morning on a, on a, in a Panera bread and read through the scriptures. What do you guys think that means? And they say stuff, and I'm like, that's not even close. Does that mean that at all? You're, that's heresy. What you're saying is heresy. Let me tell you how to, you know, that's what it's like. That's not why I'm in a disciple group. It's for the last 10 minutes. Here's why. Because in the last 10 minutes, when we close up the word, we say, prayer requests. Let's go prayer request. How can we pray for each other? And basically what these men are saying is, man, I'm wounded. I'm wounded. And the, and the, and the rest of us who are doing okay right now, because if you're doing good right now, praise God, the wound's coming. And, and we say, okay, man, bro, get in here. Get in here. We're praying for you. We're covering you. We got this group text thing. We share prayer requests through the week. That's what this thing is about because we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. And so Paul says, be careful. Watch out. Because you can be taken captive by these rivals of the gospel. And then he keeps going, verse 9. <clears throat> for in him, that's Jesus. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Put a star by that. When we get to verse 15, we're going to circle back around and it will make a lot of sense then. It's very important. Verse 11. In him, in Jesus, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, if you're new to church, you're like, what are we talking about? All right, it's kind of weird, all right? We don't talk about this all the time, but let me just unpack this real quick. In the Old Testament, there was an outward and visible symbol that represented the people that had a covenant with God. It was God's idea, seems kind of random to me, but that's what they went with. It was circumcision. If you don't know what it is, just Google it. That should be fun for the rest of the day, okay? Or ask your mom, okay? So, but it was an outward and visible symbol to signify for the whole world that you are a child of God. And so what Paul says here, Paul says that, that we Christians, people that believe in Jesus, were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That doesn't mean the rabbi was like, look, my no hands, did it with his feet. That's not what it means. It's a spiritual circumcision. And so not to be overly graphic, but in, the old in circumcision, you take a part of flesh and you discard it and throw it away. In Christ, when you surrender your life to the Lordship of Christ, spiritually speaking, he takes a part of your flesh, the old man, the old you, and discards it and puts that thing to death. And so that's what he's talking about here. That in him we were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So there's a spiritual circumcision, verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul would say, 
if the Old Testament symbol, outward symbol of a personal relationship with God was circumcision, then the New Testament symbol is baptism. And all the men went, yay! Because if it was still that, then, you know, all of our Discovery 1122 classes would just be women, all right? They'd be like, well, ain't nobody standing up acting like a man around here. Okay, whatever. But the New Testament symbol is baptism. And then Paul describes what baptism is. He says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So baptism is an outward and visible symbol of a personal relationship that we have with God. It's kind of like a wedding ring. You know what this wedding band represents? It is an outward and visible symbol that I have a relationship with Gretchen Martin. And so this is not my marriage. This is not my relationship. So if I do not wear it, it does not mean I don't have a relationship with her. The relationship in and of itself is what it is. So just like baptism, if you didn't get baptized, it doesn't mean you're not saved. But it also means this. Just because if I were to give this ring to you and say, here, you put it on, it doesn't mean because you put on my wedding band, you have a relationship with G. You wish, but sucker, she's mine. That's what it says. <laughs> Gotta back off, okay? And so <clears throat> in a similar way, Baptism is an outward declaration, an outward invisible symbol of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for those who are raised in faith. So some of you were sprinkled as babies because your parents decided that for you. Praise God. That's great. Your parents were committing themselves, committing you to be a part of the church so that you could understand the gospel and one day have the faith that they were hoping for you. That's great. It's not the way the Bible describes what baptism is, but they were doing a good thing in their tradition. But if you were a believer in Christ, you should take the, the next step of obedience and be baptized as a believer. And, and the reason that we dunk is for two reasons. One, one is just what the word means. Baptizo in Greek gets transliterated into the word baptism. And that word baptizo means to dip, dunk, or submerge. And in fact, in the first century, it wasn't, even a, it wasn't even a religious word or a church word. You can find the word baptizo in first century cookbooks. And it would say, uh, the way you turn a cucumber into a pickle is that you baptizo it in vinegar. And that doesn't mean you take the cucumber and be like, do you believe in Jesus? Okay, look, that's not how it works. <laughs> Spring a little vinegar on it. You dip, dunk, or submerge it into the, the vinegar until it changes. Well... <clears throat> What Paul is saying here in baptism, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So when you get baptized, you, you step into the water, whether it's a baptistry here or it's out at the beach this summer, and you will be asked, who is Jesus to you? And your answer is, he is my Lord and Savior. And then the person says, upon your declaration of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I baptize you, my brother or sister. And what it is, is you are declaring to the whole world that, that, G, that you've surrendered your life to Christ, that you have faith in him, that you believe when he died on the cross, somehow that counted for you. And then you are buried with Christ. This is why we dunk you back like this under the water, so that you, you're showing the whole world, I have been crucified with Christ, all right? The old me is dead. And you are put to death, put in this watery grave to symbolize that you were put to death in Christ. And then the water is a symbol of the washing away of your sins. Depending on how much sin you have, that's how long we hold you under, right? <laughs> now, some of us would still be there. You know, a little help and a snorkel, please. All right, so 
And then when you come out of here, it is, to, it is to represent that just like Christ was raised from the dead, that you are being raised to newness of life, that to never be the same again. And the reality is, is it's not even happening right then. It's a symbol of what has already happened in your life. That moment where thousands of you at 1122, in all bunch of different environments, here, the sanctuary, Bay Meadows, Mandarin, all of that happened spiritually on the inside of you. That moment, you said, all right, I surrender. I believe that when Christ died on the cross, somehow that counted for me. That in that moment, this is what happened, and then we go public with it in baptism. Verse 13. And Paul's going to sum up the gospel in just a few lines. He says this, and you, and you who were dead in your trespasses, with the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There's two things in this verse in regards to the gospel. First, the gospel is not about bad people trying to be better. Again, that's how I grew up, okay? I grew up in a system. They, I don't think they meant to proclaim it this way, but here's what all of us heard. All of us heard every week, God is good, you are bad, try harder, see you next week. Once you get your act together, then you can be a good Christian. The problem is, none of us could do it. And that is not the gospel. The gospel is not about bad people being better. The gospel is about dead people coming to life. That, that you, if you're in Christ, you and I were spiritually dead. You know what dead people can do to bring themselves back to life? Nothing. You've never seen a dead person be like, clear, okay, glad I got that out of the way. That is not how it works. And so you and I were spiritually dead and God did in us something that you and I could not do for ourselves. And this should just be the greatest relief that you've ever heard in your entire life. Because what if your eternity was up to you? I don't think we could bear up under the weight of the responsibility of eternity for our own soul. And so Paul is saying, it's not by your activity it's God demonstrating his love for you by Christ's activity on the cross that takes people that are spiritually dead and makes them alive. That's a part of it. The other part that's huge is this. I want you to look at your Bible now, okay? Verse 13, after the comma, after the second comma, having forgiven us, what does that say? All of our trespasses. Now, two things. How come every time I bring my friends in here from Saturated and they'd be like, what does it say? You're like, ow, and you get all crazy. And then I get you to read along, you're like, oh. All right, we're going to talk about that some other time. <laughs> the other thing that's just true is you read that about like you believe it. You read it about like you believe it. It's like all? It's forgiveness of all? You see, I think most of us think we're about 90% saved. Like, that, like most, you know, Jesus died on the cross. And he's forgiven me of all the things that I've also forgiven me for. And he's forgiven me of all the things my mom's forgiven me for. But I got this little bucket of sin over here, and there's no way he could let me off the hook for that. Because I can't let me off the hook for that. And so we had this, these, these feelings, like I don't know that I believe that he actually has forgiven us of all of my sin. Because there's this little part I don't tell anybody about that I've just hidden from everybody, everybody. And I can't forgive me. Well, how about try this on for size? If this is true and he has forgiven us of all of our trespasses, did you know that the Bible commands you to forgive? The Bible says, forgive as Christ has forgiven you, so you must forgive. That's Colossians chapter three. We'll be there in a month. 
That's, that's what he says. So if you don't forgive, that is a sin. And the reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is so big, the grace of God is so wide, that he forgives even your unforgiveness against yourself. That's how big the gospel is. So it doesn't matter if you can't forgive you because Christ has forgiven you of all, all. And the Greek word for all is all. That's just what it means. All of our trespasses. And you say, okay, well, how? How could he do that? How could he raise me to newness in life? How could he forgive me of all of my trespasses? And then the Apostle Paul takes a first century reality and uses it to demonstrate how he does this. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. In the first century, there were two legal documents that would be present if you were, were in a, a court of trial, all right, if you were on trial. You see, Rome was built on a legal system, and those, that legal system was not, it wasn't just ideas of somebody in charge or the feelings of some judge, but there was a system of rules, and if you were accused of something, you would literally bring in a document that was called your record of debt. And it was, the, it was your transgressions, your tra- trespasses, the laws that you had broken. Oftentimes, they made, the, they made the criminal fill it out himself. I mean, there's no email filing system where they can just bring up your record of debt. So you would carry this thing around with you, and you would come to court with your record of debt. And, again, Rome is built on a legal system, so the judge just doesn't haphazardly decide what the legal demand of that is. There was a Senate or a governing body that had already decided if this is the crime, this is the punishment or penalty. Treason is death. And so when Paul says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, people knew what he was talking about. And you say, well, how in the world did he do this? He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. The picture, see, this is not a pardon. A pardon is, yep, you committed a crime. Don't worry about it. We're going to overlook it. God does not overlook sin. But he forgives. I can't find the word pardon in the New Testament. Only forgiveness. It's different. You see, the image is this. The image is you walk into the courtroom of God with your record of debt, and one page will not do it. Can we just be honest about that? Can you imagine bringing to church your record of debt, every sin you've ever committed? Not just the physical ones, the outward ones that people can see, but I'm talking about the sinful mess that goes here in your mind. Like when you are in disciple group and somebody has a prayer request, and you're like, that person, I hate that guy. That. (laughs) Hear that nervous laughter? (laughs) You too. Oh, my gosh. And I'm the leader. Right. Every thought, every negative emotion that you've had towards people, every hate, every prejudice, that thing that you thought was gone and it stirs back up, that record of debt. And the image here is that that God cancels it. You're like, how could you cancel that, God? Well, I set it aside. Well, how did you set it aside? By nailing it to the cross. The image is that Jesus himself is holding your record of debt, and the nail goes through his hand. And then your record of debt is covered in the blood of Jesus. So that when you go to look at your record of debt, and you're like, um, Judge, I can't see any of my sins listed here on the record of debt because I can't read through the blood that has covered them all. Amen. And so then the judge says, okay, well then here, take mine. Here, take mine. So here, take, take the record of, of 
my son, Jesus Christ. So every time you sin, his blood covers it. And every time he did what was right, you get credit for that. That is what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. For anybody who would believe. For anybody who would believe. And then verse 15. I really did all that just to get to verse 15 to set this up. And this this is the ripple effects of the gospel. This is the effective work of the gospel. Verse 15. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, not of Rome, but the, but the spiritual rulers and authorities that, that prowl around trying to take us out through the cross. You see, it's a reference all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 3. When sin enters the world for the very first time, Adam and Eve, they, they commit high treason against the great high king. What they have earned and deserve is death. What they get is mercy and grace. And as, as God is casting them out of the garden because he's holy, and he's also providing a covering for them at the expense of an animal, it's a picture of the gospel, he pronounces these words to Adam and Eve. He looks at Eve and he says, you're going to have an offspring. It's going to be a single Jewish male. It's going to be a Messiah. It's going to come from you, from you. And this enemy, this enemy is going to bruise his heel, but this Messiah is going to crush the enemy's head. Now you fast forward thousands of years, and Jesus is hanging on a cross, and he pushes up on his nail-pierced feet, and he says, it is finished. And in this moment, the enemy thinks, we won. We just won. God Almighty sent his son, Jesus, on a rescue mission for God's wayward children, and they killed him. We won. He thought he'd actually won when he bruised his heel. And little did he know that Jesus was just preparing for the skull crushing that was to come three days later. When Christ came out of the grave, he crushed the enemy and forever disarmed him. Disarmed him. Which means, amen, which means that the enemy had a weapon that he does not have anymore. He takes away from the enemy the number one weapon, the only eternal weapon that the enemy ever had. The only eternal weapon that the enemy had outside of the cross is condemnation, to make you pay for your sin. It's the only weapon that the enemy could put his hooks in and drag you to a Christless eternity that we call hell. And in Christ, Christ disarms the enemy from that one. Now, he's still got the three that we've talked about from 1 John 2.15. If you've been around a while, we talk about this all the time. Don't love the world. Don't love anything in the world. The only thing this world has to offer is lust of the flesh, lust, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So the enemy, in his toolbox, he's still deceitful. He's still crafty. He's just not original. He's got three tools in his toolbox. He's got three lures in his tackle box. But if you are in Christ and he hooks you with one of them, it's all catch and release. He can't take you home forever. This is what it means to be disarmed. Jesus gives the enemy's mission statement in John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. And if you are in Christ, the enemy has to limit, kill, steal, and destroy to only temporary things. The enemy cannot, he cannot, because Christ has disarmed him, he cannot kill your relationship with Jesus, he cannot steal your salvation, and he cannot destroy you. Those things... Those things are summed up in one word, condemnation. He cannot. The enemy has no right to condemn you. And yet most Christians walking around feeling the feelings of condemnation because you don't understand the power and the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the enemy still has temptations. He's still got pride of life. He's still got um, lust of the flesh and lust of the eyes. 
I think the most theologically rich thing I've ever said in my life that I've never seen anybody write down is this. Temptation is tempting. So he's still throwing those lures in front of us. It can just have no eternal impact on the believer. But yet it can cause us to wrestle and struggle. If you go to Romans chapter 7, the apostle Paul is unpacking these feelings of condemnation. Romans chapter 7. Beginning in verse 15, Paul says this. For I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but what I do, the very thing I hate. Can we just be honest? Anybody ever feel like that? Anybody ever be like, golly, man, I'm trying. Jesus, I love you. I want to quit doing this. I got this. It's going to be different this week. And then you look up and you're like, it ain't that different this week. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but... I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin. You ever been there? Let me tell you when you're there. It's going to be in about 15 minutes. When we're closing down with that last song, the word of God has gone out. The spirit of God has both comforted you and convicted you. You believe the gospel afresh, so you're running to the Father instead of running from him. You're down here at the altar, me too, just crying sometimes, repenting. God, forgive me. I'm claiming the forgiveness that's already mine in Christ Jesus, and I'm going to do different. God, this week's going to be different. And you do, man. You believe with everything you're made of. I'm going to live different. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to forgive that person. I mean, you're ready to go. You really delight in the law of God in your inner being and then Monday night you're flipping through Netflix going what is wrong with me anybody ever feel that way how about the apostle Paul would go me too and can we agree Paul's a Christian when he's writing the New Testament pretty sure you're in if God chooses you to write the New Testament he's all same guy that said to live is Christ to die is gain he's also writing what is wrong with me See, what's wrong with him is that that as we are tempted and as we have this war going on within us, we have these feelings of condemnation. And so then, here's its conclusion, verse 24. Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. That's his conclusion. You see, I think, y'all been wondering what this is the whole time, haven't you? I think this is how most people walk around condemned the feelings that we have yeah I'm about 90 percent saved which makes me 100 percent condemned if you just google dictionary the word condemn we get three primary definitions number one express complete disapproval of and you think yep that's how God sees me God just has this low-grade frustration with me because I'm just continue to be a screw-up right, the second definition is sentence to death Think, yeah, that's what I deserve. And pastor, I hear you saying that, uh, that, that the gospel is for everybody, that Jesus died for it. Not me. He didn't die for me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I am doing right now. You don't know my addiction. You don't know my orientation. You don't know my attraction. 
You don't know the things that I've done. My last church told me because of my affair, I can't come there anymore. My last church told me because my marriage didn't work, then neither would the gospel. My last church told me because I have an abortion that I am not welcomed here anymore. This is what I am. I am condemned. Condemned, and I deserve it. And most people, including Paul, Paul is feeling, what a wretched man that I am. Because of my activity, because of my affliction, because of my addiction, because of my sin, most people walk around, they feel like this. And so Paul asked the question, what what am I going to do? Who will deliver me from this body of death? He's saying, Lord, I am helpless and hopeless. And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then you get Romans 8.1. I quote it all the time. Romans 8.1 is the answer to all of Romans 7 where Paul's saying, what is wrong with me? Why do I feel so much condemnation? Romans 8.1 says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if, if condemnation is disapproval, then Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Propitiation means a payment that satisfies. So if God is fully satisfied in Jesus on the cross, then he cannot be dissatisfied in you. That means he knew your sin before he adopted you into his family and the price is paid in full. If condemnation means sentence to death, there was a death sentence. But Jesus took our place. That God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were under condemnation, while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. The third definition of, of condemned in the dictionary, it's a building term. It means a vessel deemed unfit for use, like you would condemn a building. And I think there's a bunch of people walking around saying, that's me. I am unfit for use. If you only knew the things I've done, if you only knew the things I'm doing right now, the things I'm struggling with, the things that I thought were going to be in a distant past, then you would look at me and say, you are unfit for use. And yet the gospel tells us that Jesus, in whom the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell, remember the verse I told you to go back to? In you he will dwell. So the world says, condemned, unfit for use. And Jesus walks up and says, nah, I tell you what, I want to move in and make your body my temple. Your life is my permanent address here on earth because you are not condemned. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus says it himself in John 3, 16, 17, and 18. Everybody knows John 3, 16. Half of you know 17, two of you know 18. They all go together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes or trusts, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God did not send his son to hang this burden around your neck, but to take it off. And then verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but... Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That when Christ died on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He took away the primary weapon that the enemy had, which was condemnation. So for anybody who believes that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it counted for them. And they say, okay, I give up. I surrender. You're my Lord. I'm not the boss of me anymore. Then in that moment, he disarmed the condemnation of the enemy. The way Jesus said it himself, he said, come to me, 
Come to me, all you who are, the way I memorized it is this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. There is no heavier burden than the burden of condemnation. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your soul. And he says, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and it is light. My question for you is this, do you believe? Are you sick of walking around with the chains of condemnation that are weighing you down? And are you ready to take off the chains? To take them off and to put on the yoke of Jesus, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you ready to put down the the chains of addiction and the chains of condemnation and the chains of these things and just throw them away and say, listen, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't even think my feelings have caught up with this yet. I still got unanswered questions and my whole life is still a train wreck. Perfect. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You don't have to pretend and you don't have to perform. All you do is you believe, you trust, you surrender, you admit it. I have felt the burden of condemnation my whole life. I believe somehow right now for the very first time that when Christ died on the cross, it counted for me. When he says it is finished, it means that the chains of condemnation are gone. And in this moment, I want to confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Would you please bow your head and close your eyes? If you're a Christian, would you just do this? Would you... Remind yourself that therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That there's not this standard that you have to live up to because Christ has already lived the perfect standard. And your record of debt has been canceled, nailed to the cross. And if you are here today, if you're in Bay Meadows, if you're in Mandarin, if you're in the sanctuary. And you would say, I am ready to take off the chains of condemnation. And to experience the freedom of the forgiveness of Jesus. If I admit that I'm a sinner, I believe when Jesus died on the cross, it counted for me, and I am ready to confess him as Lord and Savior. Would you just tell him right where you are? Just confess it right where you are. And by the power of the blood of Jesus, the chains will come off and you will be set free. And if that's you, if you pray that prayer, would you raise your hand and say, Father, here I am. I am ready to take the chains of condemnation off fully and finally in you. Don't be ashamed. You raise that hand. Because your record of debt has been nailed to the cross. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, we love you because you're first. You love first. You went first. God, I thank you that that is a gospel issue. And Lord, I pray that by a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, standing on the authority of the Word of God, by the blood of Jesus and the love of a Heavenly Father, God, that you would root out the condemnation that may try to sift its way into your church. Because therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This world does not get to tell us who we are or how we should feel. Only Jesus gets to tell, we, tell us who we are because we are yours. So Lord, I pray that we would be resurrected in a newness of life. And just as we have received the gospel, God, we would live it out and we would walk it out. And I thank you that even today... In all of our locations, God, that chains are falling off and people are being set free to be free indeed. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.